Father, we come to you today asking, would your Holy Spirit move among us in our midst, cause our mind, our heart, and our attention be attached to you, be bound to the Spirit this morning, and that as we look through the words, the commandment of the Lord Jesus himself, the words in red, may they come alive in each one of us in our minds, in our heart, and cause us, Lord, to challenge us to step out and say, Lord, I want to do this. I want to be a part of the work and of the calling and of the ministry in which you have ordained since the beginning, the apostles who sat at your teaching and throughout the millennia until now, that we may come to the place where we say, yes, Lord, we will obey and we will carry out your command until the day that we see you coming in the, in, in the clouds or when we come home to be with you. So I pray, Lord, as the word go out today, may it accomplish what your will and your desire is for us for the kingdom's sake and for the name of Jesus' sake. And we pray all this in the name of the Lord. Amen. Matthew 28. Let's look at the verses. I'll begin with the verse 16, and then we'll go back and we take a look at this chapter. Then the eleven disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them. If you're going to leave your family for the last time, what is the message that you want to tell your family before you leave them forever? It has to be something that is most important to you. And I want us to focus on not just the message, which we already know is the Great Commission, but I want to take a step back and look at how he did it, how he put this together as the last, you can say, will and testament of the Lord before he ascended. Of course, he's not gone forever. He will return. What did he do? How did he formulate this environment in which he delivered this message? And we're going to focus on how he organized, how he structured the environment in which he delivered this last message. And that's our focus today. There are two things that you pick up in this verse. Number one is that he called his specific people to be there, the 11. What happened to the other one? Who killed himself? Judas Iscariot. So instead of the 12, you have the 11 because one of them is no longer with them. What does that tell you about the life of those who follow Christ? Not all will make it. There is an illusion that everybody is going to make it. But here, the term 11 here tells you that not all will make it. Not everyone calls Lord, Lord, will be saved. The question that we ask, we need to sincerely ask ourselves is, am I going to make it? None of us identify ourselves with Judas Iscariot. But are we going to make it? Examine your life. Figure out whether or not you are counted one of the 11 or the 1. Not all will make it. And 2, in this passage you see there is a designated place where Jesus told them to go there. And that is Galilee. Where in Galilee? A mountain. Doesn't it say in your text that there's a mountain? What does this text say? Into the mountain. There is a specific place, and we're going to get to that, and in an area called Galilee. This is the formation of the Church of Jesus Christ. It will not look like anything that the Jews have experienced in the past. 
This is a new era. This is a new institution of the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ as Lord and King. Notice the contrast here between Galilee and Jerusalem. The contrast between the temple and the mountain. Galilee is called the place of the heathen. It means that the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is now a new gospel open to the world. Whereas the salvation was of the Jews, Jesus says, salvation is of the Jews in the Old Testament. And where do they worship the Lord? In the temple. The Lord Jesus Christ, by initiating the disciples or by commanding the disciples to go to Galilee outside of Jerusalem, into a mountain, not into a synagogue, tells you that this is a completely new reign. Here's a new king. Here's the new Lord. Here is a new kingdom. Who were the eleven? What nationality were they? They were Jewish. This is outrageous to someone who will worship God outside of Jerusalem, outside of the temple. This is outrageous. This is unheard of. But yet, if you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is your king and is your Lord and is your God, then would you obey him? Secondly, we must understand that the worship of God will not be had in isolation. God does not have his worship be done in isolation, meaning you cannot privatize your worship of God. You cannot have worship by yourself. The Lord Jesus Christ did not institute the way of worship in which everyone worshiped God individually by themselves. The worship of God has always been, since the 11th apostles here, the gathering of the believers. Let's look at the location. The gathering of the disciples on the mountain in Galilee was the form that the Lord instituted how and what the church should look like. Jesus designated a specific place. So when we worship, we go to a specific place to worship. Now, I want you to note that this mountain was not named. It was an unnamed mountain. You don't know where it is. Why the Bible did not tell you what mountain it was. Because God did not want to make it into a sacred place. You see, the worship of Jesus Christ translates the visible temple into an invisible temple. Jesus says, destroy this temple. And when he said destroy this temple, what are you talking about? Or which temple was he talking about? His body. What did the people think about? The building, Jerusalem, the uh, Herodian temple that was built. And how long did it stay? Up to the year 70, it was destroyed. He was both, in fact, prophesied about the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the body, his body. But one resurrected and the other one was not. There are some Christian and some eschatologists, I suppose you can call them, think that there is a rebuilding of the old temple. Even if they rebuild the temple, that's no longer the temple. And Matthew was guided by the Holy Spirit when he wrote this, left the name of this mountain out for the specific purpose that we would not 
we will not make it into this is the new place that Christians will worship. And every year we're going to have a hajj and we're going to go there and we make a pilgrimage to this mountain because this is the place where the Lord appeared to the eleven. And we're going to march around for days and chanting something and praying. That's what we do. We idolize things that we can see. And the Lord wants us to, no, 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 no. We need to look at the Lord as a, as a, as a temple that's not made with human hands. The new temple that the Lord instituted is not made with human hands. The disciples come together into this mountain so that the Lord can institute the temple in their heart and not in this place that they go to. Galilee is the heathen circle. He's taking them from Jerusalem and bringing them out and say, no longer will you worship God in Jerusalem. Or he talks to the Samaritan woman, no longer will you worship God on this mountain. And he said, the time will come when those who worship God will worship him in spirit and in truth. So he said, no longer is Jerusalem the place of worship and no longer that mountain. So this mountain, unnamed mountain, will not be hallowed like the other mountains, other places, because anything that men can put their hands to will be destroyed. God said, I will shake the mountains. I will shake the earth. Everything that can be shaken will collapse so that those things that cannot be shaken will remain. And what will not be shaken? Those things that are not visible. Everything that is visible can be shaken. Those things that are invisible is the temple of God, which is in you, is and will not ever be shaken. So hold on to the invisible temple of God, which he built in the lives of the believer. And Galilee represents the exodus from Jerusalem outside into the world, from Judea, from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and in the uttermost part of the world. Jerusalem is no longer the exclusive place of worship because if you are a Gentile, you cannot come into the temple. The Gentiles are excluded from Jerusalem. You cannot come in there and therefore you cannot worship God and therefore you cannot be saved because we are built and we are commissioned to worship God. So what Jesus did was he took the worship from Jerusalem, abolished the old way of worship, and now institute worship in this heathen circle called Galilee. Secondly, the, the realm of salvation is no longer limited to the Jews. Remember Jesus says, Salvation is of the Jew. And then he said, for God so loved the world. So now Jesus came and Jesus died and he resurrected. Now he is Lord. He has conquered death and the grave. And now he's saying, no longer will you worship in this temple, but now go to the place that I have appointed. The temple of God is now the place or the places in which Jesus says, you will worship me here. And that's where we should obey. And that's how we should obey. The removal from Jerusalem into Galilee became the impetus for us to begin to think that the gospel will now move from the Jews or the Jewish culture outside in, into the uttermost parts of the earth. Acts 1 verse 8. The mountain represents the open heaven. If you contrast the mountain and you look at the temple and how it was built, the temple has three sections. The outer courts, the holy place, and the most holy place. What is separating the most holy place from the holy place? The veil, yes, the veil. What happened to that veil when Jesus died? Cracked it open, it got ripped up. So the veil is now open, but if you're a Gentile, can you come into the temple? No, you can't. The symbolic rending of that veil means that now there is an open heaven. 
The temple is no longer necessary because Jesus has abolished the veil, the separation between you and God. Because between you and God, there need to be a high priest. Now, the high priest has sinned. And if he is unclean, he cannot come into God. Your salvation or your forgiveness depends on, well, the priest's sanctification. If the priest is not sanctified, well, sorry, on the Day of Atonement, he can't come in because he's not sanctified. You're not going to be sure if your sin's going to be forgiven on the Day of Atonement. That is why they desire to have a priest that is holy, at least does the sacrifices that will make him holy. But, you know, we are human. We sin. What Jesus does is that he said, I will be your priest. I will be the one that will take your sin and bring it to God for your forgiveness, for your sanctification, for your redemption. Now, are you secure? Yes. And he said this. He said, no longer is there a veil that's needed between the priest and God because Jesus Christ is holy. He is God. There's no longer the separation between the Son and the Father. Unnecessary. And because that is unnecessary, the temple is unnecessary because there is one who is greater than the temple who is here. And who is that? The Lord Jesus. He said, there is one here who is greater than the temple, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the new temple is Jesus Christ. And the mountain represents the openness of God's revelation upon Jesus Christ. And therefore, we can come to God through Jesus Christ wherever does not need to be the temple because Jesus Christ is the new temple. Hebrews 9.11 But Christ being come an high priest of good things to come by a greater and more perfect tabernacle. What does that mean? It means Jesus Christ is a perfect, the perfect priest and tabernacle. We can't ask for anyone else. There isn't anyone else who can take this place not made with hands, that is to say, not of this building, pointing to the temple, that which will be destroyed. The new temple is the resurrected body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the new temple. And because he is resurrected, he can now instill that temple in you and I. Okay. So that's, that's what resurrection does, is that now the things that were visible becomes invisible and becomes spiritual, and it can be imparted to us. The mountain represents a couple of things. If you are into analogies, you can think about Jesus. He used the mountains for many things. He went up there to pray. He went there to teach the Beatitudes. He transfigured before the people on the mountain. So the mountain became this place of direct revelation from God. And Jesus used that. Now, think about this. Jesus also taught in the synagogue, but he also saw, taught outside the synagogue, telling us that there, this is a new era. This is a new kingdom. This is the new king. This is the new Lord. Isaiah 40, verse 11. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. Now here in this passage, this is a prophecy about the great shepherd of God. He here refers to the Lord Jesus as a shepherd. For all of those people that you will have friends and you will have sometimes family members says, I don't have to go to church. I can just worship God at home. As long as my communication with God is good, I'm okay. 
then the Lord that you are worshiping is not a shepherd. Have you ever seen a shepherd shepherding one sheep? The shepherd will always have a flock. When a shepherd shepherding one sheep, what is he doing? He's bringing that lost sheep back to the flock. The purpose of a shepherd is to shepherd the flock. And when you see that one sheep that's carried by the shepherd, he found the lost sheep is bringing that sheep back to the flock. Yeah, so the Lord is a shepherd and he shepherds his flock. And therefore, when he said, you, my disciples, go to Galilee, into the mountain, what is he doing? He's gathering his flock together and they were to go to the place where he designated them. Jesus told them, you will go to Galilee and go to a mountain where I have appointed you. What is he doing? What is he doing when he gave that command? My sheep will hear my voice. I call to them and they follow me. When Jesus was crucified, what happened to his sheep? They got scattered. And what happened when Jesus Christ resurrected? He called them. To where? To a place, to a designated mountain, and they were going to meet him there. You see, we are all scattered, lost sheep. And until we can hear the word of God, and until we can hear the call of God and respond to that call, we are lost. Now, this is what happened when Jesus was resurrected. The Marys, Magdalene and the other Mary went to the grave and there was a, an angel there and the angel there says that the Lord is not here. He has risen. And here's the command. Go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he goeth before you into Galilee. There shall ye see him. Lo, I have told you. Why did Jesus not tell them himself? Why didn't Jesus go to each of the disciples and said, you, go to Galilee, to that mountain. You, go to Galilee, to that mountain. Why didn't he do it himself? That is the question. Because, of course, we are Americans. We are individualists. Anything that happens to us, I need to hear directly from God, otherwise I'm not doing it. That's not the biblical teaching. We are not saved in isolation. We are saved by the Lord, all of us. What the Lord is doing here is a pattern so that you and I, we can, we can learn from. First of all, he used the angel because the angel witnessed his resurrection. When you hear angel announcement, you will go to his birth. The same way that he came from the throne of God into the world, the angel announced. The same way he came from the underworld and into the resurrection of new life, the angel made the proclamation. The messenger. Angel is basically a, a name for messenger. The king, properly, when he descended from heaven, he was the king, he descended from heaven, the angel made the announcement, his messenger made the announcement. When the king is resurrected, his messenger made the announcement because Jesus Christ is not just a person. He is the king of kings. He is the Lord of lords. When there is an announcement to meet the king, his messenger will bring. Now, if you want to meet the president, he's not going to come and give you the invitation. You will get the invitation from whom? 
his secretary. So when we want to meet the king, we will hear the invitation not from the king, but from his, his messengers. Now, from the angel, the angel told who? The women who were there. And let us look again in verse 10. Be not afraid. Go tell my brethren, my disciples, that they go into Galilee and there shall see me. So the angel found the shepherd, told the shepherds. The shepherds went and told everyone. Same thing happened here. The angel told Mary and, and Magdalene and they went and told his disciples. You would ask, why didn't he come and tell his disciples? That's not how the king works. He has his messengers, and his messengers will carry out the invitation because Jesus Christ is now King of kings and Lord of lords, the seat of authority. We now, today, we say, you know what? If God wants to talk to you, he'll come and talk to you himself. Well, that's blasphemous. You are his messenger. Here's the decree. Run and tell the people my decree. And this is what you're saying. King, why don't you do it yourself? I'm tired. They won't listen to me. See, but sometimes we do that, don't we? God say, you share me with your friend. And in your head you say, well, if God wants to do it, he does it himself. The church is the flock. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. Jesus gave his voice, but not in the way that we want to hear, meaning we all want the heavens to open. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And we say, oh, God, thank you. That's not how God works. It's not the Bible. The Bible does this. Some old prophet look ragged and haggard, beaten up, come to you and says, so say it the Lord. And you say, who are you? The Lord uses us. We might not look like anything to someone who, re- who would receive or reject us, but the Lord uses us to deliver his message. Because my sheep, he said, hears my voice. When we speak the word as messengers of God, when we speak his word, we are messengers. That's all we are. We are messengers. And when we speak the word, the people of God, his sheep will hear his voice and they come to the mountain and they gather and Jesus will show up. Right? Wrong. Let me rephrase that. Let me, let me see if you still pay attention. What I said was, when we hear his voice, we go to the mountain, we assemble together, and then Jesus shows up. It is false. It is not true. That's not how God works. We hear that all the time in the church, right? I invite you, Jesus, to come into this meeting. Wrong doctrine. Matthew 26, two chapters before that, verse 32. Because I wanted to dispel this notion that somehow we can invoke the presence of Jesus Christ. We can't invoke the presence of Jesus Christ. He is not at our beck and call. We do not invoke his presence. We never invoke his presence. What does it say, Daniel, in verse 32 of chapter 26? I will go before you. I will go before you into Galilee. Jesus already said that he will meet them in Galilee. Did they believe? No, they didn't believe. When he was crucified, they said, oh no, he died. They didn't believe. They all scattered. When he shows up, they were afraid. They didn't open the door because they thought it was, Peter thought it was a ghost. They forgot that Jesus says, I will go before you. He said this even before he was crucified. He said, I will be there before you. I will be at that place in Galilee, in the mountain, before you. 
You see, a good shepherd doesn't drive the sheep, you know, smacking them and driving. That's not a good shepherd. That's a hireling. A good shepherd goes before the sheep, leads the sheep by his voice, not by whipping them. When Jesus called us to assemble, what he's doing is that he's calling us to come to him. He's calling us to come to him, and he will use people to call us. We will not hear the audible voice of the Lord Jesus. We will hear it from people around us, and if we're humble enough, we'll heed the call, and we will meet him there. That's how Jesus communicates with us. That's how the king communicates. When he has faithful servants, if you remember when Absalom died, David's beloved son, Oh, my son, my son, would I die for thee? Joab, remember Joab was the captain of the host of David's army. He wants to send the news to David. There were two messengers. One of them Joab wanted to send, and the other one Joab did not want to send. There were some political reasons behind. But both of them want to go. When God has faithful messengers, they want to go. They want to go and give the news. Now, are you a faithful messenger? Do you have a message to deliver? Now, these messengers competed. One runs in the plains, and then one runs in the mountain. They wanted to be the first one to bring this news to the king. So we are, as messengers, we are driven by our enthusiasm. And I'm not using this word in a bad sense, right? In, in the old sense, enthusiasm are those people who cannot control their emotion. No, enthusiasm meaning they are driven by their desire to accomplish a mission. And if we are enthusiastic messengers, we will run. We will take this news and we will run and we will outrun the next person. Just like the Apostle Paul. I don't want to run in vain. Right? I want to rejoice in the day of Christ. I have not run in vain, neither have I labored in vain. We are messengers of God. We should be. Now, if you, if you, look, at, if you look at me, for example, and you don't see that, I am, that I'm excited about the gospel, then why would you be? If I'm not excited about the message that I'm delivering to you, I'm, I'm delivering to you, then why would you be? So as messengers of God, as those who, who have the voice of God, we need to be excited. We need to believe. And we need to understand and believe and truly, truly put our hearts and soul and mind into this message. And when we deliver, people take hold of it and say, this is something that is important to the messenger. It must be important to his Lord. And so we are called to deliver this message. We are called to be the voice of Jesus Christ that calls his people to come and assemble in the place in which he appointed them. That is the church. That is this gathering place. When you are here, when you come to assemble, when you gather together, the Lord is not invoked by our prayers. He has already been here waiting for us. Now think about that the next time you think about going to church. You know, God does not show up when you show up. He's already here. Jesus is already here. Are you going to keep him waiting? This is the sentiment that would tell you how great and how important the Lord Jesus Christ is to an individual when we show our devotion and our commitment to the Lord. The Apostle Paul put it this way, body is not one member, but the body is composed of many members, and no one member is important or more important than the other. Everyone in the church, all members in the church are equally important in the eyes of God because we cannot say, Hen, I don't need you. Every member of your body, now if I say, you know, which part of, which part of your hands you want, let me, I'll cut it off for you. It's hard to decide. And if you could, you say, I don't, I want to keep them all. I want all my fingers. The body of Jesus Christ is not one member, Paul says, but it is everyone coming together. 
your absence from the body of Jesus Christ is taken away from this unity that God has instituted as his body. And lastly, for gathering, he is the preeminent presence in our congregation. When we come here, Jesus Christ has been here. He's been waiting for us. And let's look at the next verse. When the 11 disciples went away into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Now, I want to focus your attention on when they saw him, they worshipped him. When we come into the body, when we come into the congregation, the first thing that we do is to worship God. How do you worship God? You worship God, and the term worship here means to bow down and kiss. That's what the term worship means. The worship of God means you bowing your heart, you coming in with a humility and say, you know, God, this is the time for you. This is the time when I would exclude all of other thoughts and focus my mind, my attention, my love, my affection wholly and entirely unto you. I will bow down and I will worship you. That's what worship means. To take everything that we have and bring it out and say, God, this is what I have to offer you today. When the disciples saw Jesus, they literally came, they hold him, his hands, and they bow down and they worship him. That's what they actually do. But we don't have the visible manifestation of Jesus here with us anymore. But who do we have? The Word of God, inspired by the Holy Spirit. We worship God. The time has come and the time is now that those who worship me will worship in spirit and in truth. You're absolutely right. The Word is truth. And the Spirit, the revealer of that truth to us. And so we come to the Lord, come with the Word and come with the Holy Spirit. Or come with the faith in the Holy Spirit that He will move and reveal the Word to you. Now, I want to end with this. But some doubt it. This great commission. If the verse reads like this. And when they saw Him, they worshipped Him. And Jesus came and spake unto them, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Does that make this passage better? The reason why the Bible puts, but some doubt it here, is significant. It actually has a tremendous meaning when Matthew puts the word, some doubt it. It is those three words are the words of hope for us. None of us are without doubts. When we read this, we think, yeah, I'm the eleven. I'm the faithful one. I never doubted. But you know what? Some doubted. Who is among the doubted one here? All the disciples, they doubted. They doubted whether Jesus resurrected or not. When Mary came and told them, Peter, the great apostle, and John, beloved disciples, they didn't believe her. And so they had to go and see it for themselves. They didn't believe the messenger. Doubt will be part of us. We are the doubters. When we come into the worship of God, and if you think that the worship of God is comprised without any doubters, then we are without hope. There's no hope for any of us. But all of us doubt. All of us come with some kind of trepidation, some kind of fear, some kind of sin, some kind of reservation. We all come with doubts. And this passage in Matthew was right and was directed by the Holy Spirit to put it in here so that we have hope that Jesus will not reject you because you doubt it. Jesus will not cast you out because you doubt it. Jesus will not say, you know, you're excluded from my assembly because you don't have enough faith. Jesus will never say that. And it's not the gospel to say that. But in the assembly, there will always be those who are weak in faith. And we need to take a page out of the Apostle Paul. And he said, 
admonish, encourage those who are weak in faith. They are among us. They are part of us. They are us. We have been once, and we continue to be in the future, weak in faith, and we need someone to come along and say, brother, it's okay. It's okay. This is what the promise of the Lord is. Now, this morning, I spent the morning reading Dan wrote his exposition on marriage, divorce, and remarriage. In the middle of it, I thought, why can't they just love each other? I can't empathize with this. And then I had to pull back and say, forgive me, Lord. See, the reality of life is that we sin, we fail, we fall, and the gospel offers hope. And no one is in the authority to judge anyone for anything. The only thing that we can do is say, what does the Bible say? How does the Bible communicate? What is God's will and what does God want to communicate with the people? And this assembly, this is the way that it will work. Listen to this in verse 18. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power. Now the word that should be emphasized here is all, all power. Jesus is the sole authority over your life and over what happens in your life. Jesus is the sole authority. Now, if anyone, if me or anyone in any position of authority come and condemn you of anything that you have done, you can say this, all authority was given to Jesus Christ and him alone. No one, no one has authority except Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ and his word is the sole authority that would convict, never condemn, convict and turn you around and bring you to repentance. Know you not that the goodness of God leads you to repentance, not condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation to those which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So there is no condemnation. Now, if you feel condemnation, if someone is condemning you, that is not the Lord Jesus Christ. There is no condemnation in Jesus Christ. There is no uh, condemnation. There's only conviction. There's only repentance. Peter, do you love me? Did he convict Peter? No, he didn't convict Peter. Do you love me? He didn't say, what did you do? What did I tell you? I told you that you would deny me, Peter. There's no way out. But Jesus, when he approached Peter, he said, Peter, do you still love me? That's all he said. There's no condemnation here. That conviction would bring a response. Lord, you do know. You do know that I love you. That's all we, we have. And then he said, go, teach all nations. This is God's commandment. Teach all nations. But who am I to teach? Thomas, come. Put your hand in my hand and put your hand on my side. I know you're weak in face. I, I know that you need to see. I need, know that you need to feel. But come, feel, touch, know, and then go teach the nations. Go teach the nations that he has risen. Now here, this is what we need to do. Teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and Holy Ghost. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. We cannot selectively choose what we can teach. We must teach everything that Jesus has commanded. Now, there's some stuff this morning I, I read in the Bible in respect to marriage, divorce, and remarriage that I would say, you know, I can not teach some of these things, but I can't. If that's in the Bible, I need to teach it. There are cases where you cannot divorce. It doesn't matter how horrendous your wife or your husband is. You cannot divorce. And there are instances where you cannot remarry. 
in this 21st century American individualistic society, we can twist that and we can omit some of these things. But if we are faithful to the Lord, we must teach what the Lord says. And he said, whatsoever, I commanded you. Whether or not we understand fully the implication, we must do it. And here's the promise. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Jesus will never leave us. He will never forsake us. He is there. Teach his word, baptize people. This morning, I also learned something. I knew before, but I never part of my mind. There are many people baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. But you know what the Bible also says? But Jesus himself baptized no one. Wouldn't it be better for Jesus to baptize everyone? That's our job. That's what we have been commissioned to do. You need to baptize. You need to teach the word. You need to baptize people. And I hope this church will open up this space so that you can walk into the commandment of God and fulfill that. Let's come to a vote in prayer. Father, we come to you and we thank you for what you have instituted here in the scripture. Your commandment, your charge, your love, your faithfulness cause us to rise to the occasion that we may be faithful messengers to deliver the charge, the mandate, the commandment that you have given since the beginning with the 11 throughout the centuries that the church existed until now. I pray that this humble church place where that authority that Jesus Christ has given to the church continues to be the foundation in which we will bring men and women, young and old, of all walks of life, come to the knowledge of your salvation and that they will be baptized and that they turn around and become messengers to the living word. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.